It's been a decade since agencies faced that dreaded S-word, sequestration. And for the first time since 2013, Congress is opening the door, even if just a crack, for the return of budget sequestration. In the Federal Report, Federal News Network's Jason Miller writes about why federal and industry executives should pay close attention as the 2024 appropriations process kicks into high gear. Yeah, so why are we talking sequestration again, Jason? It's kind of unbelievable that here we are again a decade later and then this word keeps popping back up. But one of the things that Congress did when they passed the debt ceiling bill back in June, Tom, was they said there's a provision if you don't have a spending bill passed by January 1st, across the board, you're going to get a 1% cut. Kind of like a, we'll call it a poison pill, though not necessarily the, it's not going to kill you, it's just going to make you a little upset. But that would kind of trigger that automatic 1% cut would be a sequestration. And, you know, I spoke with a bunch of folks who've Pay attention to Capitol Hill, former congressional staff members, and Mike Hettinger, one of them, president of Hettinger Strategies and former oversight and committee staff members, he goes, lawmakers really are saying they want to get it done by January 1st because that 1%, even though it's small, is not really palatable because there's enough of them on Capitol Hill that still remember what sequestration did. And Tom, I can tell you, talking from industry and talking to other agencies, it took years for them to recover from those big cuts. And if you remember, again, Tom, Obama administration had to cut discretionary spending by about $85 billion in 2013. That's ended up being about 7.8% cut to defense agencies and a 5% cut to civilian agencies. And somehow the fact that I guess some Republicans in the House came back with well, let's go with 2022 levels instead of 2023 levels, as Democrats thought they were agreeing to in the debt ceiling deal. Is that why 2024 is going to look like 2013? Well, it will look like 2013 in many ways because of the push by the Republicans, because of of the push from some of the newer members who the Freedom Caucus, as an example, who really think government spending is out of control. I think that's where part of the this concern is that 2023 to 2024 process will look like the 2013. And, and that's when we got that dreaded S word. And, Tom, you can't say that that S word too many times. Otherwise, it's like Beetlejuice. It will appear. So you got to be careful. <laughs> that's right. But but the big issue that I'm being told is that there is a huge delta between what the House budget or House appropriations bills look like today and what the Senate appropriations bill potentially will look like. The Senate really stuck close to the caps. They really listened to more of what the administration did because the Senate is run by Democrats. The House run by Republicans, they're about 80 to $110 billion less than where the Senate is. That's a huge delta. Again, Mike Hettinger tells me, you know, usually you see a delta of 15 billion, 20 billion between the two House and Senate bills, but but really they got to find a number to coalesce around. And I think that's the real big concern that that delta is so high and so large that, okay, what's really going to happen? I think it's clear that there are changes that are coming. And even if agencies see flat budgets or small cuts, that's still going to be challenging. Right. We could see double S sequestration following shutdown, (laughs) the way things are going. And so what are some of the things federal executives ought to do now so they can be prepared for what could be a really rough budget time? There's a few things folks I spoke with recommended. First of all, Emily Murphy, a former House Small Business and Armed Services staff member, former administrator of the General Services Administration, she says it's still a little too soon for panic, right? There's still a lot that's happening on Capitol Hill. But she said the first thing you need to do is understand and, and do this quickly. What, if any, are the lawmakers' concerns about your program? You know, I spoke with Jeff Newman, who's a government's contract attorney for Thompson Colburn. He believes things are going to be safe, like national security programs, like veterans programs, even things like cybersecurity and digital services are definitely going to be safe. He says, and we may not see huge increases like we've done in the past, but Newman says, listen, a lot of the things that are supporting domestic programs, whether it's manufacturing or additive technology, supply chain issues, 
things that support Ukraine, all of that will probably stay flat or see a little bit of an increase. What others have said was you really have to focus on those, quote unquote, Tom, we're using air quotes here, woke programs that, you know, the Republicans have pointed out uh, things they don't like. And, and that includes what, how Newman described it as softer programs. And those could be like the greening of government, you know, electrifying the federal fleet, getting federal buildings to zero emissions things in that realm. And if you live in those programs, I think you need to really be aware of, of what Congress is doing and what they're saying. I also spoke with some others. One of the things David Berteau said, and I thought this was very interesting, he's with the Professional Services Council. He said, you got to do three things, because if you know David, Tom, you know, he's all around threes. He's a man of lists, yes. He's a man of lists. And one of the things that, that David said was, you need to spend your money what you have in 23. Don't sit on that money because you have to give it back. You end up obviously not, if you don't move it forward, you end up, you could lose it. So, so definitely don't, you got to spend your money for 2023 and then get things started because if you're under a continued resolution, because CRs don't allow for new starts, those will not be considered new starts. So get the money out the door. Second thing he said was start to plant the seeds for out years, 2025 and beyond. What does that look like? You know you're going to have a 1% cut or, or, or a 1% increase in those years. So what can you do today to really position yourself in, in, in good spots? And then the third thing, and this is, you know, this is David to a T, be prepared for unexpected turbulence, right? He goes, there's still a lot to, that's going to happen. There's still a lot of unknowns. Uh, and this is especially true for DOD. You know, he's a former DOD executive, so he understands that even closer. All right. So there are signals, dates, people that like to watch the tea leaves and like to watch what's happening in the committees, how the Congress people are interacting. What should people be watching for that are concerned with budgets in the next couple of months? I think the one big thing that you have to watch out of what's going to happen between now and obviously September 30th, end of the federal fiscal year. You know, Matt Cornelius, a former Hill staffer for Homeland Security Government Affairs Committee, he says, start looking at the bills, understanding what the differences between the House and the Senate is. He says, you probably will see more of a scalpel cut versus a hatchet cut. The hatchet was from 2013. The scalpel, what he thinks is going to be happening today. Again, some of those programs that, that you know, members of Congress, specifically Republicans, have, have really been vocal about not liking. The second Thing, I think the other date you should look at is between uh, obviously October 1 and then December 31st. Can they get some sort of omnibus pass? Can they close that delta? Now, these are maybe obvious for most people, Tom. Oh, of course, we're going to look at those dates. But I think what's really important is what kind of progress gets made, what kind of negotiations are happening, and what where does the White House play in this, right? Because they put their budget out back in March. Their budget was obviously increase, increase, increase across the board. Congress and especially the House is, is, are not really excited for those increases. So what role does the administration play in negotiating? In the meantime, you got to pay attention to what's being said. Are members coming out against a program or your program specifically or your agency specifically? And then you should you know, start to work with your congressional affairs people. Make sure you're part of meetings. Make sure you're part of budget briefings. You know, executives have got to be more proactive probably now today than they had to be in previous years because, again, not just this delta, but because there is this mood on Capitol Hill that there's too much money being spent and we need to bring it back. And, and that's, I think, even true in the Senate to a certain extent. You know, they, they're not expecting huge increases in the Senate. And a 1% increase, while sounds nice, inflation time is still 3 4%. So in, in many ways, you're still going to face less money in the overall scheme of things. Right. And it's going to come down on contractors to some degree who don't feel they've been adequately compensated for inflation that took place, you know, a year ago and a year prior to that point. And the other unspoken issue here is that agencies, at least some of them, are awash in money still. There's still COVID relief money, despite that clawback. There is still infrastructure bill money. There's still Inflation Reduction Act money. So 
I mean, there's a lot of money around. It's not necessarily in the regular appropriations channel, though. Well, Bloomberg government estimates about $217 billion will be spent in the federal fourth quarter for uh, just on procurement. And, and that's across the board. Now, they also made a really interesting uh, prediction that a lot of this will go through multiple award type contracts, government wide acquisition contracts, the schedules. They, they really you know, blanketed say a lot of this will, will go through those, those really popular, easy, more easy to use type of contract vehicles. But I think, Tom, your point is, is, is right on in the fact that money comes late, though earlier this year than previous year. Again, David Berthaud told me he's looking at some data. And one of the things he noticed was agencies are spending at a higher rate in the second quarter this year than they did previously. He expects them to spend at a higher rate in the third quarter this year than they did previously. So he thinks while the fourth quarter will be busy, may not be as busy as it has been in maybe years past when agencies didn't get their appropriations till April or March or April timeframe. The other thing that, that I think contractors need to be aware of is are their programs, are their contracts in that world of, okay, the things that are being targeted by the Republicans in the House and or Congress more generally. And if they are, that's where those government affairs people come in. We'll use the dirty word lobbyists can come in and really try to educate Congress about why this program matters, why this contract related to this program affects a a broad range of people and can really hurt an agency's mission. So there's a role for contractors to play just as much as federal executives. Yeah, if you don't get on the merry-go-round, you can't get the brass ring. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his federal report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.